At the time this podcast is being recorded, the United States of America is going through the risky transition of very slowly but surely reopening its economy and public activities after approximately two months of lockdowns due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a time marked by profound uncertainty in terms of both public health and the economy. The catchphrase we hear is lives versus livelihood as our business and political leaders try to navigate the dangerous path between a rock and a hard place. Unemployment has risen to levels unseen since the Great Depression. A number of companies, large and small, are on the brink of bankruptcy or just simply going out of business. Many people have lost their jobs to furloughs, layoffs, cutbacks, and downsizing. Our guest this week is a leading financial planner, educator, and champion of improving financial literacy for all Americans. He's also the preeminent financial advisor on radio in America. Year after year, he's a member of Talkers Magazine's prestigious list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. He's been on the air for nearly 30 years, currently airing on 80 stations coast to coast. He's also produced several award-winning specials for public television, and he's a number one New York Times bestselling author with 10 books on personal finance, including a best-selling children's book on money. He's received so many honors and won so many awards in the financial planning industry that they're too numerous for me to be able to cite them all here on this podcast. Our guest taught personal finance for nine years at Georgetown University and currently is distinguished lecturer at his alma mater, Rowan University, which awarded him an honorary doctorate in 1999. In 2020, Rowan named its communication school after him. Our guest this week is Rick Edelman. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Interview, the weekly podcast from Podcast One for media freaks, pop culture aficionados, political junkies, and the philosophically curious. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, the Podcast One app, and Spotify, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michael at talkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. An uninterrupted conversation with Rick Edelman. I don't remember anything like this in my lifetime, Rick. You have uh, studied money and you have studied the economy and uh, you've done it for a number of decades on the radio and in private business. Have you ever seen anything in your experience that uh, equals this strange crisis that we're living through? In many cases, many ways, yes, but no, in the most fundamentally important way that matters. Uh, in all of the past crises in our lifetime, you know, go back to the crash of 87, uh, look at the recession of 92, uh, the dot-com bubble of 01, 9-11, of course, and uh, most recently, the credit crisis of 08. All of those had one thing in common. The issue was personal finance. The issue was the stock market. Uh, this one. Uh, is a pandemic, and we know that this crisis is caused by a virus, and that means we've not only seen the stock market go topsy-turvy and horrible economic impacts, 
they all pale beside the human loss of life. That, and that makes this much more similar to 9-11 than all of the others. And that's what makes it so much more scary and so much more heartfelt with all the victims and their families that are struggling through all of this as a result. And so you're right, Michael, in that context, we really haven't seen anything like this before. As, a, as, a, as The fact that you answered that way shows that you approach this as a human being as opposed to a money machine. So uh, I'm going to take it one step further. How How do you feel when you're watching the news on television, listening to radio, reading reports, this whole argument of lives versus livelihood. Uh, do you get frustrated when you hear some of the arguments? Uh, do you have a particular point of view? What's your general overview of that equation? <clears throat> well, it, it's it's under both sides are understandable, but yeah, it's very painful to see because life is far too complicated to have simplistic answers. When the one extreme of the political landscape says everybody should sit at home, shut down the economy, and let the government write checks, versus the other extreme saying everybody's got to go back to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. And who cares if a few more people die to make that happen? Well, they're both wrong. Extremism doesn't work. This is not a nation of extremists. We are collaborators. We uh, are negotiators. We, we meet in the middle. Uh, we understand that both sides, to some extent, are correct in their foundation, but we cannot operate to such extremes. Uh, and the fear that we have uh, is that one extreme or the other prevails without consideration of the needs of the other. And that isn't healthy for the country in the long term and can lead to very bad outcomes, both short term and long term. Uh, when I do see people saying, let's get everybody back to work, who cares if some more people get infected and who cares if it persists in the, in the death rate for a little while. Well, that that's just very sad and painful to watch. And I can only assume that the people making statements like that are people who have not been personally affected by this. We've had more than a dozen of our clients die as a result of COVID. We've had uh, members of our staff have family members infected. Uh, uh, we've had several family members of our employees uh, pass away from COVID complications. Um, it's very real and very personal to us. And we always have to remember that there's more to life than money. As my wife, Jean, points out frequently, personal finance is more personal than finance. And we do have to recognize there are serious economic implications to having 90% of the country shelter in place and shutting down businesses left and right, 30 million unemployed so far. That number will be 35 million very soon. Uh, unprecedented in our lifetimes. We haven't seen anything like this since 1933. That was the worst of the depression, 25% unemployment. This is going to be worse than that. Um, it's very painful to see economically. Federal government spending trillions of dollars. It's $3 trillion so far. Some are projecting it will rise to $8 trillion before this is over, raising big questions about the federal debt, about the ability for the government to uh, repay that. What will it mean for inflation rates, interest rates, and tax rates going forward? But quite frankly, I don't believe we have the luxury of worrying about those concerns right now. To me, we're dealing with a burning house. And when the firefighters show up, there are only two things they care about, getting everybody out of the house safely 
and putting out the flames. Mm. We don't have the luxury of worrying about the water damage caused by the fire hose. We'll worry about that later. And we don't have the luxury of demanding how did this fire start and who's responsible. It might be some slob laying in bed smoking a cigarette, but we'll worry about that later too. We'll deal with the behaviors later, we'll deal with the causes later, and we'll deal with the aftermath later. Right now we have a burning house and we've got to put out the flames and we've got to get everybody to safety. The rest has, we have no choice, but the rest has to wait. Very powerfully uh, put. I, uh, uh, you, you make a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of sense. Would this have been any different had we had a weak economy going into it? It's interesting how this uh, is it's almost cruel irony. You know, we had, uh, yes. and again, I'm not, a, I'm not a real economist, so I have to go with what I hear. Although uh, I am a skeptic, so I always, I, I'm always doubtful about things I hear as being givens. But I'll, let's go with the given that we had a robust economy. Um, that was, I, I guess, a, a good head start for us going into this freefall. Am I correct in that assumption? We had two things going for us. First is the very strong economy. We had the biggest, best, strongest economy in American history. Twelve years of a bull market where the stock market has risen 400% since the credit crisis of 08. We had the lowest unemployment rate in history, low in interest rates, and low inflation. We are gangbusters, which is why the stock market was up 30% last year and had already set a new record in February of this year. We, everything was wonderful. And then COVID came out of nowhere. So thank goodness we had such a strong economy. We had so many people working and so many people, therefore, having had money that they were able to save. Home values high, investment values high, retirement accounts high. That gave us the ability to go into this crisis much better off, financially prepared than we otherwise would have been. There was another huge advantage that's not getting a lot of conversation but is equally important going into this crisis. This crisis hit in March. Thank goodness it wasn't October. Why do I say that? The weather. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen the, the visuals in our news reports on the evening news every night of thousands of cars lined up for food, of people driving up to get COVID tested from their automobile. You can't do that in February. So luckily, we do have six months of really good weather that makes it easier. Thank goodness, while everybody's sheltering in place, you can go walk outside because the weather's nice. Mm -hmm. How are we going to handle this in November, December, January, February? Right. So you're so, you're approaching it from a perspective of of just the convenience of being able to deal with it, as opposed to some type of scientific medical study that the the virus correct. will die when it gets warm and all that, because uh, there's been no evidence to indicate one thing or the other. But since most, yeah, I'm not of talking the, about the virus. Right, I'm just right. talking about lifestyle. The fact yeah. that good weather makes it easier to cope with lifestyle issues. Yeah, and most of the population of the planet lives in the northern hemisphere, where we're coming into spring and summer, as opposed to the southern hemisphere, which is going into winter, which is also, you know, and, in, and that's what that's why I'm so focused on this. By sheer coincidence, I was in Australia when the virus hit. Uh -huh. uh, the day we returned home was the day that President Trump shut down traffic, uh, air traffic from Europe. So being in Australia, they were entering uh, and, and are entering their winter. And as conversation was palpable about the virus, there was concern there because in Sydney, they were recognizing that it was getting colder every day. 
And here in the Northern Hemisphere, we didn't have that concern, at least not yet. It'll come, <laughs> give it six months. Mm-hmm. But it does give us, going into the virus, it does give us some, it's one less thing for us to have to worry about. So uh, I, w- I want to get into some of your advice to people who, who are terrified right now. But before we do, I'm just curious, how are you running your company and how are you living at this point through this crisis? Well, fortunately, we're pretty good at what we do, and uh, and I'm very technologically uh, adept. Um, and my my last book was The Truth About Your Future, all about exponential technologies. And we have an absolutely fabulous technology team, uh, and our CEO is very much into this as well. So we have long had uh, contingency plans, uh, business continuity programs in place. So we were one of the first in our industry to send the staff home. We have fifteen hundred employees all around the country, 350 financial advisors and 170 offices. And we were one of the first in in any industry to send everybody home uh, for safety. And we're able to do that technologically without missing a beat. Everybody has the tech at home between laptops and iPads and online access to our redundant systems, uh, we've been able to conduct business flawlessly, um, interacting with clients, uh, meeting with them now virtually instead of physically uh, through uh, webinars and and everything from Zoom and FaceTime to uh, telephone. Uh, So we've been able to do what we do as we always do it. There's been disruption, of course, as you can imagine, for the employees. But from a client perspective, it has been completely flawless. All of our trading, all the portfolio management, all of the financial planning services and advice has been able to go without a hitch. That's been a very different experience we've learned at many other firms, including some of the very biggest in the industry, which were completely unprepared for a work-at-home environment. Um, So we're very happy that we made the investments, spent the money in years past, never thinking we'd need to do it. But 9-11 taught us a lesson, and we prepared ourselves should something horrible happen again. And well, now here we are 20 years later. What do they call that in the business world, in the financial world, a black swan event? Is that uh, an accurate uh, terminology that's used for something out of the blue? Yes, uh, it was uh, the result uh, of a book written um, about uh, economic events. uh, And the the phrase black swan refers, you know, it's always a question of what you know, people often ask me, Rick, what, what worries you? What keeps you up at night? And very often, you know, we think about the known risks in business. It's the unknown risks that are likely to do you a problem. It's a meteor crashing into the planet, something unexpected, unknown, unpredictable uh, that arrives unexpectedly. Uh, and the pandemic certainly qualifies as a black swan event. They call it, you know, it's called a black swan on the simple attitude is you never see one. You know, all the swans are white. So if you do see a black swan, boy, is that a rare, unexpected, unpredictable event. And yes, this qualifies as a black swan event. The psychology of this uh, in, in the personal advice, personal financial advice business, you're not that different than a, than a shrink, I would think. People... <laughs> Very often we are uh, forced to serve as amateur psychologists, and um, uh, that always annoys our clients who really are psychologists. <laughs> but we spend, there's a lot of research in our field of, in the subject of behavioral finance. In fact, Richard Thaler uh, and uh, Tversky have both won Nobel Prizes for their research into behavioral finance. In other words, why do investors make the decisions they make? Because we know we're human 
creatures and we act emotionally, not logically. Uh, fear and greed are the two most powerful emotions in the field of finance. And people tend to get very excited. Everybody was happy to buy stocks in February when the Dow hit the all-time high of 29500 And when the market fell 35% in five weeks, fear stepped in and people were anxious to sell at the low out of fear. So fear and greed are very powerful motivators. And unfortunately, they cause you to do the wrong thing at the wrong time for the wrong reason. You want to buy when prices are high, you're feeling good. And you want to sell when prices are low, you're feeling bad. Buy high, sell low. That's the opposite of what you're supposed to do. So we spend a lot of time with our clients helping to understand their emotional state and helping them to understand it as well so that when they call us wanting to buy or sell, we're able to help them evaluate if they're reacting correctly or if they're responding to stimulus that is not serving their best interest. All right. Well, let's shift this to another track. Not everybody is an investor. Not everybody's in the stock market. Here in the radio business, there were already layoffs going on in spite of the fact that it's a good economy because the 21st century hasn't been that good to analog-based media, whether it's print, whether it's broadcasting or whatever in terms of, um, you know, monetizing their product. So so that's a mm-hmm. whole other thing. But um, the average the average person who right now is either furloughed, laid off, fired, um, forced to take a haircut, uh, perhaps not sure what's going to happen, maybe a small business owner, one, two, three family business, uh, suddenly they have no income. Um, this is this is not a matter of, you know, selling um uh, selling high and buying low, this is a matter of, oh, my God, how do I pay the mortgage? How do I put food on the table? What should I do? What's the best path? So uh, what, do, what do you have to say to, to, to the so, so many people listening to this who are terrified, worried, sick, and facing those problems? Yeah, and it's a huge number of people, Michael. There are 110 million Americans who entered this pandemic already in credit card debt. And that was before the crisis started. And since then, as we all know, 30 million Americans have lost their jobs. You lose your job, you lose your income. And if you don't own a home, you didn't have any home equity. If you hadn't been able to save for retirement, millions of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, The Federal Reserve said two years ago that 40% of U.S. households couldn't even pay a $400 bill that showed up unexpectedly. Uh, These people are on the edge financially, and the slightest anything, a car breaking down, a child breaking an arm, would push them into financial jeopardy. Well, now comes along the pandemic, making it a whole lot worse. Uh, And this is uh, the financial precariousness that many people do not acknowledge is afflicting tens of millions of American households. And, and that, so a problem. What, what do you do if you're in that situation? That's the crisis. What we have to recognize is very simply, most Americans go about financial planning in totally the wrong way. If you ask the typical American, describe the type of times we often have, people will say there are good times and bad times. And that's completely wrong. In fact, you have bad times and preparing for bad times. And most people don't do that. 
if you don't prepare for bad times during the good times, you're not going to be able to sustain yourself financially when the bad times inevitably come because they are inevitable. Uh, Health changes, marital status, employment, family circumstances, financial issues, stuff comes up in life. Even good news is bad from an economic perspective. Your sister announces she's getting married. That's good news, right? Mm. Not if you have to rent a tux, buy an airplane ticket, a dress, and a present. Mm. Even good news is expensive. So everything costs money, let alone the bad news, which we really know can get expensive. So if you don't prepare for bad times during good times, then I don't know how you're going to handle the bad times when they finally arrive. Bad, prepare for bad times. So that, that the only way I could see to prepare for bad times is is not to, if you'll pardon the expression, piss money away stupidly because you think it's going to be coming in forever, and 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 put some money in the bank and save, make intelligent uh, purchases and intelligent investments, uh, and don't uh, live above your means and uh, stay out of credit card debt. I mean, what else can one do? Not everybody, you know, is a financial genius. Well, you're absolutely correct. And if you're not a financial genius, you can follow some basic uh, approaches. You've cited a few of them. And also to turn to people who are the financial geniuses. I mean, you don't have to be an expert in medicine. It's why you go to one who is, a doctor. And you don't need to be an expert in personal finance, but go to one who is, a financial planner. That's what we do. That's our training. We can give you advice about your mortgage, about your car, about rent, about taxes and insurance and employee benefits at work, uh, about bank accounts and, and anything with a dollar sign. The average American makes three decisions per day that are financially motivated. Most people have no financial knowledge because we don't get any education K through 12 about money. Most go through college without ever taking a personal finance or economics course. Our employers never talk about money and most grew up in households where mom and dad never mentioned it either. They'll talk about politics, they'll talk about religion, drugs, and sex, they won't talk about money. And so we grew up financially illiterate. Only 17 states require a financial planning course uh, in public schools, and of the 17, 14 don't require a test. So is it any wonder that when we're facing a question about money, such as should you buy the car for cash or should you finance it? And if you do finance it, what kind of a loan should you get? And should you get the loan from the car dealer or your local bank? We don't know what the answer to that question is because no one ever taught us. And we've never bought a car before, so we have no experience to guide us. Naturally, we end up making a bad decision, especially since the guy on the other side of the table is a financial professional who sells cars all day long and he knows how to get you to do what he wants you to do, not what is in your best interest. Mm. Conflicts of interest are persuasive around here. We know enough to know that we hate banks and credit card companies and insurance companies because we can't trust them. But we don't know why we can't trust them. We don't know what we need to do in order to be able to make the decisions that are in our best interest. So if you don't have that info, hire a financial advisor. But you said it right, Michael. There's only a few basic things you've got to do to give yourself some semblance of hope. Number one, the best thing you said was live beyond your live below your means if you simply spend less than you earn that's that takes care of an awful lot of problems the challenge here is that a great many american households don't have the luxury of spending less than they earn due to the cost of living the cost of food education 
and healthcare, which have all risen higher than the overall average rate of inflation, coupled with stagnant incomes. In fact, for a great many occupations in America, incomes today are lower than they were 20 years ago. So it's a bad combination. Stagnant income with rising costs, coupled with families that are uh, in multiple, uh, what we call a, a mixed household, where you have children from prior marriages, you have more uh, single uh, head of household families than ever before. Instead of having two parents both working, you have a single household with multiple children, uh, with people not earning as much as they need to be earning to be able to pay their bills. This is why 40% of households are living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have the luxury of spending less than they earn. Many people who are in credit card debt, 13% by the latest survey I saw, are in credit card debt because they're using credit cards to pay for daily expenses, utilities, and childcare. It's not because they're wantonly spending the money on vacations frivolously or buying jewelry and fancy clothes. They're paying for car repairs that if they don't do that, they can't drive to work, they lose their job. They're paying for child care. Well, this is a real problem. Uh, so as a society, we have to address the fact that there are millions of people who haven't been able to position themselves to effectively prepare for bad times. Yeah, they're, they're using credit as an asset as opposed to understanding that credit is an invitation for a deficit as opposed to an asset. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they, get, they get a letter from a bank. You know, we've just increased your credit $10,000. They say, oh, I got $10,000 in the bank I didn't have before, as opposed to realizing it's a, it's a lure to get you deeper into debt. I, I well, find sure. that. And our whole society and our business model is based on making that the case. I'll give you a classic question I often ask um, my uh, seminar audiences. What's the typical price? for a big screen TV. You tell me, Michael, how much is it? What's the typical price for a big screen? Oh, I'd say uh, somewhere around $1,000 is halfway between the cheap ones that you can get for 300 bucks and the ones that are 4000 So uh, between a grand and $2,000, I would say. Not for at big... all. You know what it is? $19.99 a month. Oh, wow. You see, I, I, I don't think that way. Um, I know you don't, but the vast majority of America does. I don't have the thousand bucks, but I'm willing to sign a piece of paper that obligates me for nineteen ninety nine a month. Isn't that something? And that's how we build up our debt. We right. buy cars. We don't pay cash. We finance it. We buy houses. We finance it. We go to college. We finance it. We get televisions and clothing and jewelry and vacations. We finance all of it. And the Wall Street machine is very happy to provide that credit because they want to make the sale today. They'll worry about you paying it off later at exorbitantly high interest rates. So you're right. The system is designed for their best interest, not yours. And that's part of the problem. And you fall for it because of your lack of financial education and knowledge. It turns us into wage slaves. That's what happens. Everybody, uh, you become a slave. So so one of the things I'm I'm noting in this conversation is just how smart you are. (laughs) And uh, and I'm I'm very uh, uh, impressed, to say the least. I don't mean to patronize you, but you your answers are not what I expected. Uh, you have a candor and an insight that uh, makes you sound uh, like you could be a public policy radio host as opposed to a financial <laughs> advisor. And, uh, well, and, I appreciate uh, that. And, Thank and plus, you. So I, I, I think that's so I want to ask you a couple of questions that I hadn't prepared to ask, but um, maybe you can help me out. Um, and that is there just seems to be such a disconnect, Rick, between 
what we hear and what we see. Now, back to the original point we were making that we have a robust economy and that the Wall Street is setting records and all of this was great and Trump has the greatest economy in the history of America and now it's shut down. But when you scratch the surface... This amount of percentage of people are living paycheck to paycheck. This percentage of people are in credit card debt. These these people don't have $400 if they have a crisis. Um, people don't have education about how to handle their money. Um, and you often hear people say that Wall Street is not indicative of Main Street. It is not necessarily indicative of day-to-day uh, -day life in terms of finances for the average person. Have I thrown too much at you there? Um what is what is the reality of this? Um, how could we have a robust economy when when you look at it uh, under the microscope? So many people are hurting and so close to the edge of the cliff. Well, it's always a tale of two cities, isn't it? Um, it's uh, always a case where you have the macro, the what's going on in the country overall, and then there is you individually. In fact, it's an old joke on Wall Street. You re you define a recession as what happens when your neighbor loses his job, right. and it's called a depression when you lose yours. Mm -hmm. I know, and by the way, folks, so, that's not the official <laughs> definition of the terms, but it sure does strike. <laughs> it sure absolutely right. It sure does strike. Feels. In other right. words, if I'm doing fine, my personal experience might not be reflective of what's going on across the country. This, this came about 10 years ago with the 99 percenters. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of folks saying that the top 1% of America was doing great financially. The top 1% has most of the income, most of the assets, and the 99% doesn't have very much at all. And you can look at um, tax revenues in the country. The very small percentage of Americans pay most of the taxes. Similarly, very small percentage of Americans have most of the money. How is that possible? How could that be? And it happens from a couple of ways. Number one is sheer demographics. Most of the people in America, oh, I shouldn't say most, but the, the biggest cohort in America are the baby boomers. That's soon being replaced by Gen X, but for the moment, boomers are the biggest population. And being the oldest, they also have most of the money. Because the more, the, the longer you live, the more money you earn, the more money you save, the longer you save it, the more you end up accumulating. So everybody understands that a 70-year-old is likely to have more money than a 20-year-old. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we have to look at what did that 70-year-old do? What behaviors did that person engage in that allowed them to accumulate wealth? Did they go to college to get a degree in a field that pays more than what a typical person with a high school diploma can earn. And when the person did earn more money, did they save some of it? And how much did they save and where did they save it? So how much you save, where you save, and how long you save contributes to how much money you end up with when you're in your 60s and 70s and 80s. If someone doesn't engage in those specific kinds of uh, behaviors, they're not going to end up very well. But even if they do that, they still end up having to get lucky. They've got to marry well. They've got to avoid job layoffs. They've got to avoid medical crises. And they've got to avoid distracting family challenges, such as special needs members of the family, uh, those with 
uh, long-term chronic illness um, or injury that proves to be very expensive that takes them out of the workforce for a period. They've got to avoid tornadoes that might knock their house down. In other words, a lot of it is dumb luck. Mm-hmm. Not, a yeah. great many Americans uh, are suffering financially not because they're spendthrifts, not because they're lazy, not because they don't care, but simply bad things happening to good people. Um, they were in uh, abusive marriages, or they have a child with special needs, or they have a parent with Alzheimer's, or they worked for a company that got uh, wiped out due to technological innovation, uh, and they lost their job, um, or, or, or. Things just happen. And so we need to recognize that if we're basing our ability to succeed on me doing everything right and nothing bad ever happening to me, well, that's a set of hurdles that are just ridiculous to base our lives on. We need to adjust those hurdles so that we don't have to be so fortunate and so lucky at the same time. uh, And that isn't something that our society has addressed. Well, talking about what a society addresses in societal norms as we come to the uh, conclusion of a conversation that is so open-ended, I I wish we had, you know, two or three weeks to talk. Um, Do you think, and this is is Rick Edelman, the philosopher now, do you think that we're going to learn any lessons from this when this is finally over, if it ever ends? Uh, Do you think that we will come out of this societally with a higher degree of consciousness about these things? Uh, There will be lessons learned by government, academia, and business. Yes, just as there were lessons learned after 9-11. Air air flying has never been the same after 9-11 because of the lessons learned. Mm -hmm. There will be new lessons to learn from the next crisis. We will certainly get out of this crisis, only to face another one, (laughs) because there's always a crisis. Life goes on, and our nation, ever since the American Revolution, has bounced from crisis to crisis, and we've done it for more than 200 years, and we'll do it for the next 200. I'm not worried about the the nation not learning its lessons. We will. I am worried about individuals learning their lessons and adapting their behaviors as necessary so that they personally and their families don't have to go through next time what we went through this time. In other words, we know that when Hurricane Andrew flattened communities, the communities were able to rebuild. But the individual who lost his house in Hurricane Andrew, was he smart enough to buy the proper type of homeowner's insurance so that the next time his house had a catastrophe, he didn't suffer financially? Will we individually learn the lessons and uh, modify our behaviors? Some of us will, but some of us won't. And there you have it. An uninterrupted conversation with financial advisor Rick Edelman. To learn more about Rick, his radio show and services, please visit EdelmanFinancialEngines.com. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Podcast One app. And for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michael at talkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in hearing my weekly one-hour radio show, The Michael Harrison Rap, check out mhwrap.com. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. 
The Michael Harrison Interview. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Interview is a presentation of Podcast One in association with Good Phone Communications and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.